0: Welcome back to the Black and White Podcast, where we seek to filter the gray world around us through God's Word with radical grace, raw truth, and real hope. I'm Denise Pass, and I am with my friend and co-host, Angela Donadio. And we are so excited to have two special friends on the podcast this week and next I'm not going to let out a girly scream here, <laughs> I promise, but I so want to. I just adore these two women and their faithfulness to disciple women is such a blessing. All right, Denise, you're keeping
1: us in suspense. We are so thrilled to have authors Amy Carroll and Sherry Gregory on the podcast to discuss their new book, Exhale, Lose Who You Are Not, Love Who You Are, and Live Your One Life Well. Welcome, Amy and Sherry.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having us today. We're excited to be with you too. We already love you in person, so this is great.
0: But now we can just have like a little kumbaya moment. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Exactly.
0: It's a joy to have you both here. I just got back from our family beach vacation and have to tell you that reading Exhale while i was on vacation was just such Mm -hmm. a perfect match this month we've been discussing self-care on the podcast and truly this is what your book does it whispers what our souls so desperately need today we're going to discuss the first section of your book lose who you're not the scripture for today's episode is taken from romans 6 verses 6 through 7 where we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Ladies, I'm excited for our listeners because you share amazing principles in your book that can truly set us free. I think we can struggle to lose who we are not because we have accepted a false identity of ourselves other than the identity that Christ has given to us.
2: You know, we believe that's exactly true, that as women in this culture that throws so much at us as far as expectations, that we've taken on identities and roles and tasks and tasks and tasks Mm -hmm. that were never ours to take in the first place. And when we do that, it leaves us just exhausted and running on empty. And I've come to think of these things as a kind of a spiritual clutter. And I think some of us are spiritual hoarders that Mm -hmm. we've taken all these things on and filled up the spaces of the rooms of our lives in ways that keep us from, living our one life well.
1: Mm. That's so great and I'm just wondering Amy as you're saying that was that because I can completely relate was that concept of spiritual clutter and taking on too much was this a process that you kind of came to understand that or was it something that was kind of a, a boiling point or I'm just kind of asking that in the in the hopes of maybe some of our listeners that are wondering how do they even identify that they've become kind of a Mm -hmm. spiritual hoarder.
2: Well, it's so funny because the story of the evolution of the book, and you guys have both written books, so you know that you have a beginning point and then it grows. And for Exhale, I had this idea that I really wanted to encourage women to stop spending their life on everything in front of them and start investing in the things that God had given them to do. So um, I had sworn I would never write another book again (laughs) after my first one. Because <laughs> it was an agonizing process, but this this idea just kept growing. And as God does, He was He's bossy. He gets to tell us what to do, and thank goodness <laughs> He does. Um, and I I was walking one day, and I thought I was thinking about the ideas of this book and how passionate I was about those ideas. And I kept thinking, well. I, Sherry and I have a podcast together, like you two do. And I kept thinking, well, I'm going to have to quote Sherry on page three, and on mm. page four, and nine, and twenty, and you know, and I on and on. And I was like, wait, maybe she would write this book with me. Mm-hmm. So when I approached her about this idea, she said, Amy, I think it's a great idea, but here's the problem. Uh, The women that we talk to are already exhausted because they're doers. They're women who want to make a difference in the world. And she said, if we tell them to stop spending their lives and start investing their lives, they will try to do that. Mm -hmm. But they will add it to the list of all the things (laughs) they already are doing, and they'll fail again. Mm -hmm. So Sherry had this concept. So Sherry, jump in. Tell them about the Mm -hmm. original concept. Well,
3: you know, that's where the subtitle of the book came in. Lose who you're not, love who you are, live your one life well. The live your one life well part of the book is Amy's original vision for investing. Mm -hmm. But in order to be able to invest rather than spend, 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 that's where the first two steps of the process come in so important.
0: Mm. You know, there's so much insight to share in your book that we're just going to have to have two parts, you know, <laughs> there's just no way about it. I love the playful statement, um, Amy, that you referenced in chapter one about Zacchaeus, falling short doesn't stop us. <laughs> I remember being four foot 11 in sixth grade, and let me tell you, I felt like it stopped me then, but, but we so often do let our weaknesses cause us to get stuck. You discuss how the real root of this paralysis happens. Can you share on that a bit?
2: Well, I think the root of any paralysis of moving forward usually is fear, and for those of us that are doers that really want to do things well, um, Sherry and I talk about that. Women who love God have three um, kind of priorities in their lives, and I would say that I'm going to give them an ascending order. So, the first one is that we really do have this desire to have um, our hearts fulfilled. We want to feel like we are living life that matters. We want to love our people well. Mm. And most importantly, we want to glorify God. But most of us have decided that only one or two of these is possible at a time. Mm. And we believe, Sherry and I believe, that all three of them are possible, but change has to be made to get there. (laughs) And change is so scary um, Mm. because the... a a lot of times we're so scared we allow ourselves to stay stuck, even in a life that doesn't feel good to us because it's kind of the devil we know idea. But Zacchaeus was in this life. I I loved looking at this story again, kind of beyond the felt board. And for some of you women who are (laughs) my age and above, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, that he was in a life that probably didn't feel good. He was a, not only a tax collector, but he was the chief tax collector. And so um, he people in his community literally hated him. He was sleeping with the enemy. He was working with the Romans his life. Even though he was wealthy, he it couldn't have felt good to have everyone around him despise him. But he overcame any kind of fear of change because he wanted to see who Jesus is. He's such a great model for us because he decided in this one moment in time that he wanted Jesus more than anything. Mm-hmm. that he he was willing to change and to literally go out on a limb, <laughs> that he climbed tree. tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he went out on a limb to see Jesus. And so he was ready for change. But here's the good news, because a change is scary. A change is hard. But just like with Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't leave us alone to change. It's mm-hmm. not like he wants us to change and he's like, go do it, girls, do your best. He went home with Zacchaeus. Mm. He comes home with us. His presence is with us. Jesus is the source of empowered change. And he's a change agent. I mean, he he's all about, he loves us, but he doesn't want to leave us right, right where we are. But he empowers us to change. He doesn't expect us to, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps.
0: Mm-hmm. So good. And when I think about the times in my life where I've seen my need for change, I will often try to do it in my own strength. Mm-hmm. Instead of seeing that conviction from the Lord as an invitation You know, it's not a condemnation. I think that's a problem. A lot of people feel condemned when they see their need for change, but it's a kindness to see our need for change, you know?
2: Well, and it always, change always leads to better relationships, better relationships Mm. with God and better relationships with others. And I think we're afraid of change a lot of times because we're afraid of what it's going to do to our relationships. But our God is so good Mm. that they're always better.
0: Yes. Amen. Sherry, as a musician and a worship leader, actually both Angela and I are, Mm -hmm. but I was a jazz trombonist uh, at the University of Maryland, and I love the section that you have on competent mistakes. Mm. I did exhale when I read that. I just want (laughs) you to know. (laughs) Good. And the paradigm shift you had about perfectionism, shame, and the fear of man are often behind our perfectionism tendencies and fear of being vulnerable. We would not have shame if we did not have an audience, right? Mm-hmm. But you share in this book how to defeat these tendencies in our human nature. Can you unpack your strategy for overcoming what you call error terror with the fun factor?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, the fact that you have been a jazz trombonist, you like <laughs> your your cool factor has just <laughs> <gone right laughs> <out>. woohoo. <laughs> You know, this goes all the way back, probably six, seven years for me ago. For me, when I was at a leadership um, program, and the morning workshop was called "Leadership as Improv." And ladies, as a as a perfectionist at that time, I wasn't even a reforming perfectionist. I liked my spontaneity very carefully planned. Thank you. <laughs> and so I literally sat in the very back row because I was afraid they were going to like give three words, drag me on stage, and tell me to improv. And I'm like, oh no, 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 no. But it turned out it was a jazz quartet, and What the leader did was he contrasted classical performing with jazz improv. And I was absolutely, um, I was stunned to see the difference because I had had 10 years of classical piano training and really what was reinforced in me was nothing's worse than making mistakes. Like Mm -hmm. it has to be done perfectly or it's a complete failure. And so when he was saying that the way they do things is they actually weave errors into the music and so it just becomes a part of a new composition and that's Mm -hmm. when he said it's just considered a competent mistake you know like my brain knew what the word competent meant and what the word mistake meant but I could not put those two words together it was so astonishing I even went up to him afterwards I'm like could you say that again because I think I heard you wrong and he laughed Mm -hmm. at me and (laughs) and so really what it what it set me off on this kind of a, a journey on was to realize that in so many areas of our lives our mistakes. Now, what I mean by a mistake here is not a moral failing, but a mistake. Our mistakes don't matter nearly as much as how we react to our mistakes. And so often our our, um, melting down or hyper-focusing on the way it was supposed to be ends up really being a downer to everybody else you know i'm thinking of all the birthday parties i had for my kids where the cake didn't turn out just right well all they really wanted was a happy mother you know they didn't care if mm. if, if the cake looked a certain way or not they cared what my face looked like they cared mm. if i was laughing and having fun and being fully present for them and you know i was as i was uh, preparing for this i was thinking you know as a child i even mem- memorized a merry heart do with good like a medicine And so that fun factor, as you called it, is healing in so many ways. Um, But one thing that I thought about here as I was looking at your question is... um, you said we wouldn't have shame if you if we didn't have an audience, and that ties in so closely to the story that I unpack in chapter mm-hmm. two of Exhale of Peter walking on the water, mm-hmm. because first of all, he had the guts, he had the faith to get out of the boat, and you know, those of us who are recover, who are still in the perfectionistic stage, mm-hmm. when we think of that story, we think of the fact that he sunk, you know, that he took his eyes off Jesus and he sank, and we're like, you know, we we, we like to you know bag on him for that, but and if we just pause long enough to realize hang on he he was the one out of the 12 who actually got out of the boat you know that that alone is pretty amazing and but when was it that he got in trouble? Well, it's when he paid attention to his audience. It's mm-hmm. when he turned around to look back at the boat, at his, at his buddies. He was probably showing off a little bit, and he took his eyes off Christ. So I think you're so right about that aspect of what happens when we are over aware of our of our human audience and not paying enough attention to the only audience that actually mm. matters.
1: That's so great. That is so great, Sherry. And I call myself a recovering perfectionist. I've got quite a few dog-eared pages of Amy's first book, Breaking Up with um, mm. per, with Perfect. So um, I love some of the things that you've said in there. And I love the concept. I'm, I, I was trained as a classical pianist, and mm. but I love to play by ear. And I noticed the difference in how I'm just approaching it if it's a by ear meaning I'm just winging it I'm playing whatever is sure. on my heart versus what's written and you use the phrase a new composition and I feel like mm. when God is trying to do something new in our lives mm. he uses failure what we might call failure might just actually be the path to the next growth curve that he's trying mm. to get us on and I have on my desk at home a little metal kind of block, and it says, what would you attempt if you knew you would not fail? Mm, mm, And mm. I held on to that for a long time, and then I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro for clean water, and I became very sick with altitude sickness and had to stop just short of the summit, and I really wrestled with that, and I felt like I failed, and then I came back home, and I looked at that block, and I thought, you know... I did exactly what I was able to do, and God met me in such a profound, personal way in what I call my own personal summit. Mm -hmm. When I watched the rest of my team at midnight summiting with their little lights, I turned my headlight off and watched them all make the summit, and there were several of us who didn't summit. We were together, and I went back home, and I actually shared a message after that. I said, what would we accomplish? What would we attempt, excuse me, if we thought we might even fail? Because Mm. failure can keep us from even attempting something or like you said, the fear of it. We live these marginalized lives Mm. because we're so much in error terror that we don't ever try. Like you're probably going to fail at something, but (laughs) like try it and just the growth you may get out of it, the discovery you're going to get far outweighs that momentary pain of thinking that you failed. Perhaps you didn't fail. Perhaps it was just the next step in the journey and the new composition that God is writing. I just love that Mm. phrase that you, that you
3: stated there. Mm. Well, and I love your story. You can't see me, but I'm over here, busy tearing up.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, you know, uh, even with the classical piano versus playing by ear, people would prefer to hear me by ear, let me tell you that because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't do it perfectly. The mm-hmm. classical, you know, and mm-hmm. so for me, you know, on Sundays I just play by ear, you know, when I'm leading worship because that is more where I'm in tune with the Lord mm-hmm. than trying to be so perfect. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you what you uh, your chapter brought up for me, uh, Sherry, was remembering a gluten-free cake I made for my daughter that tossed and fell over. <laughs> <right> <laughs> no. <laughs> And it was a princess cake, you know, castle. uh, But being able to laugh, like, yes, just that's what what is memorable now. We all
3: laughed. (laughs) And and that's one of the things I'm trying to learn to do is laugh at myself a lot sooner and even laugh at the absurdity of trying to be perfect. I mean, when it comes down to it, it's pretty funny.
0: Yeah, it is. (laughs) Amy, in Chapter 3, you share, in our journey to lose who we're not, We have to jettison all people-pleasing that supersedes our desire to please God. Wow. You also share that people-pleasing is a detour from following the Father. When we consider that people-pleasing can be above pleasing God, this is something we have to deal with. Amy, how do you deal with man's expectations lovingly, yet not prioritize them above God's will in your life?
2: Well, this is complicated, isn't it? But I think this is where a lot of the spiritual clutter comes from, that, that we're taking on other people's inappropriate expectations. So I think there's a, a distinction that needs to be there, that there are appropriate expectations. And appropriate expectations aren't always easy expectations. I want to be clear about that. Just an example right now in my own life is that my parents are aging, I hope they're not listening to this because they're they don't like that thought either. Oh, um, but yeah. my parents are aging and they're needing a they're needing a little more attention and help. Now, is that always convenient for me? Nope. Is that always easy to fit into my schedule? It's not, but it is an appropriate expectation. And my parents. Um, they don't they don't push a lot of inappropriate stuff on me so i do it with a lot of joy so but there are times when people want to heap inappropriate expectations on us and even more powerfully in my life is the inappropriate expectations that grow in my own head it's what mm-hmm. i think other people want from me and it's a, it's a, an attempt to people please that probably even beyond what the people around me want or Or expect from me. And so suddenly that's when that spiritual clutter starts to pile up in my life that Mm -hmm. keeps me from living my one life well. Honestly, most of the times it's easier to choose the path of least resistance, right? (laughs) Trying to please the people in front of us. But there are times when living our one life well means putting off that people-pleasing so that we can follow the Father, Um, that that we cannot do both. We can't please the people around us if we're going to obey God and take that next step of obedience. And so what we have to do is we have to wrap our brains around this idea that it's a leap of faith to follow the Father. First Mm -hmm. of all, we have to know what He's saying, right? Which means that we have to spend time with Him. We have to spend time in His Word. We have to be asking Him for direction and guidance so that we know where to follow Him. And then if that... Um, conflicts with so, what somebody else is asking us to do. We have to say no to that other thing so that we can follow the, our father. And I think that there are loving ways to do that. Um, and I think that we can just say, hey, I, I'm not able to do that for you right now because I have this commitment that I've made. Um, and But will people always like it? Mm-hmm. Nope. And we mm-hmm. have to be, that's where the, we have to push back against the people pleasing that has to come in. It's a leap of faith. I think ultimately we have to believe what's true. And I'll tell you what's true. If I, let's, Angela, let's just say that you asked me to do something that I feel like is an inappropriate expectation and say no to you. What I have to do is I have to trust God enough and have faith enough that someone else will fulfill mm-hmm. that need for you. Mm. Um, And I have to know that plan A for me is not plan B for Angela. It's still plan A for Angela, that God Mm. is taking care of her just like he's taking care of me. And so um, God has all of our good in mind. Uh, There was a friend that gave me a picture of this that just helped tremendously. She, She had a really difficult relationship with her mother. And her mother was a mom who often piled a lot of Um, unhealthy, inappropriate expectations on her. Mm -hmm. There were emotional expectations. There were scheduling expectations. All kinds of things were flying at my friend all the time. Mm -hmm. And big disappointment if she didn't live up to it. And she said, you know, she said, I've started to see all those inappropriate expectations as plates of trash. Mm -hmm. She said, and so for years, my mom has been handing me these plates of trash. Mm -hmm. And for a long, long time, I was like, oh, thank you for that plate of trash. Of course, I'll take that plate of trash for you. She said, now I've come to be able to identify them as inappropriate. And so I'll Mm. be like, "Mm, I don't think that's my plate of trash. And she goes, I don't hold my hands out for him anymore. I Mm. just, yeah, I think that I'm sorry. I think that's yours. (laughs) And so that is a picture that has really, really helped me that not all of it's mine to deal with.
1: That is so good, Amy. And I remember in your first book, you said that perfectionists have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility. And I still am learning that, that I take on things that are not a responsibility. But as you're talking about expectations, would you believe I could literally feel like myself getting anxious while you talked mm. about expectations? Because they carry anxiety. They carry, like you said, the weight of disappointment. And maybe I'm not going to meet an expectation. I, I'm in the ministry. And so you feel like you just have to be all things to all people. And, and you guys address that. What if that's not what that scripture really means and being what God has called us to be involves no. And he said, no. And even Jesus said, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. That's not my mission. I mean, he only served for three years and he got everything done. I mean, how did he get everything done (laughs) in three? I have no idea how that was accomplished, (laughs) but he was able to say no and he was able to set that aside and just do what the father told him to do and stay in alignment. And that, that, like you said, is not only the faith, it's also being willing to, to to disappoint someone or to release that expectation to live in what's a healthy boundary for us. So I just so appreciate your perspective. And Sherry, you hit on such a common, another common problem we really struggle with was fear. And I love how you say in your book, fear from the past doesn't mean we don't have enough faith. Can you share how we can overcome Fear's grip
3: on our lives. I know so many of our listeners struggle with this. Sure. You know, for so many years now, I just keep coming back to Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Um, mm-hmm. There's, There was a woman who was truly defined by her past and, and uh, anchored to it, so much so that when Jesus mentioned that she had had five husbands and the man she was with wasn't even her husband, she, she later said that, He told her everything she'd ever done. So in her mind, all all of her entire life was just kind of defined by these failed relationships. Mm. And I find it so symbolic that after Jesus, let's see, Jesus takes the initiative to seek her out. He engages her in one of the most theologically complex discussions recorded in all of scripture. And then he reveals himself to her. Like he is totally transparent with her. He just shows who he is and tells her everything about himself. Her response is to run back to town and leave her jar at the well. And to me, that's just so symbolic because that's who I want to be. That's Mm -hmm. who I want to become. I want to become a woman who leaves her jar at the well those heavy things, those expectations, my agenda. You know, basically she trades identities at that point. And when I think about the fears from my past, these are the things that happened in childhood. These are the things that keep me stuck in pockets and places of immaturity. Mm -hmm. And so the the way that I've seen, you know, to overcome fear is that you show up at the well where Jesus Mm -hmm. is always already waiting for you. Mm -hmm. And it's in his presence that you grow up. And so the way I like to say is that we are no longer girls gripped by fear. We are women held by faith. I love that. Show up and grow up.
0: I love that. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly.
3: Show up and grow up.
0: And it's really also just about surrender. Mm-hmm. You know, saying, I just want what you have for me, God. I don't want what, what I think is best. Amy, you share a powerful principle about boundaries that you call Jesus' principle of intention. I appreciate your transparency about the parenting struggle with an adult child. <laughs> I have to tell you that I've had the same conversation with one of my children about grades in college. And it was so hard because I've never been one of those, you have to get an A, but you know, there's right. times where they really do need that intervention. And it's like, they're an adult child. What does this look like? So can you unpack this principle that helped you navigate that challenge?
2: Well, so I opened my email one day to a shocking list of grades. <laughs> and, uh, the thing we have never been—you have to make straight A's either. But it became very apparent that we were working harder to make the money for college than yes. the college student was putting into college. Pretty so, um, so we—I my first response was very passive. Actually, I was like, I just kind of threw up my hands, and I was like, "Well, it's his life and." Whatever, you know, and I went outside, though, because I had all this pent up kind of anger and energy. And I was whacking away at one of my trees. <laughs> and, uh, and as I did, you know, some of the energy kind of dissipated. And as the, as the anger dissipated, God really started whispering to me. And, and he said, um, hey, aim, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm pruning the tree. And he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just like I prune you. And aren't you glad I've never thrown up my hands and given up mm-hmm. on you? And um, and he started speaking to me about what we needed to do for our son. Well Jesus modeled this for us this print what I've thought about of this principle of an intention and it's in such sharp contrast to the way I often live my life which is this, by the seat of my pants you know you're just dealing with the next thing that's flying at you and you're kind of just doing the best you can and Jesus did not live this way that in John 8:28 through 29 Jesus said I do nothing on my own but speak just Mm -hmm. what the Father has taught me. The one who has sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. And as I read that and studied that at one point, I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. So every word that came out of Jesus's mouth was intentional. Every word, Act every place He went, everything He did, every prayer He prayed, every interaction He had was intentional. Jesus only said what the Father told Him to say. He only did what the Father told Him to do. And certainly, we live that imperfectly. Mm. (laughs) But that sets us standard for us. that that should be our pattern too. And there are really three steps to that principle of intention. It kind of goes back to what I talked about in the last little bit, which is number one, we have to listen to God for God's voice. If we want to know what we are supposed to say, if we want to know what we're supposed to be doing, we have to listen to God. And that takes Mm -hmm. time. It takes some discipline a lot of days. It takes some silence. And I'm a talker. So Hmm. God often is like, shh, (laughs) (laughs) listen, uh, for God's voice. And then we do what He tells us to do, and we say what He tells us to say. Hmm. Um, And that's what we had to do with our son. And we went through some hard steps that I describe in that chapter. And You know, every story is not tied up with a pretty pink bow, but in this case, the Mm. boundaries became a huge blessing in our family. And that's Mm. one of the things that, you know, that I've had to wrestle with because as Christian women, a lot of times, even in the church, we're told, well, if you have a servant's heart, You'll do whatever you're asked to do, or you'll just do the next thing. And I don't necessarily think that's biblical. Mm. Um, I think that boundaries are biblical, and Jesus modeled them really, really well for us. And that setting a boundary means choosing Mm. God's direction over someone else's expectation. And that's Mm. hard sometimes.
0: That's such freedom, though. Mm. Some of the burdens we bear in this life are borrowed. We can create drama— and worry that cause a lot of confusion and disillusionment you, know, Sherry, you share about how to stop being a problem preventer that I think is so insightful can you share on that
3: yeah well there was an eye-opening conversation I had with my husband about three years ago and he was talking about how he's a problem solver and, and he was saying that as if it was in contrast to me and I said well I'm a problem solver too and he said no you're not and, you know, the Holy Spirit gave me the grace to keep my mouth shut at that moment because there were things I really wanted to say. Yeah. Um, but I was heading off to speak at a women's retreat, and so I really didn't want to leave the house. I mean, just had a really bad argument. Don't you love my spiritual uh, mm. depth here? Um but so what what happened no the holy spirit did give me i think a holy curiosity and as i drove i was thinking well why would he say that well obviously he said that because he believes it to be true so how would he why is it my husband doesn't see me as a problem solver and i realized oh he never sees me solve problems mm. and i'm like well if he can't see it happening then what's going on i realized oh i'm not a problem solver i'm a problem mm. preventer i like Anticipate what could go wrong, and mm. I nip it in the bud. And then, of course, I don't go reporting it to people. Why would I go to him and say I, I prevented five problems today? Well, you only celebrate what actually happened, and so I'm I'm the only one aware of doing these things. And mm-hmm. the problem is that. Um, the, the line between helping and meddling mm. becomes very, very blurry when you live that way. You know, I was very proud. I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, and I have been a junior high or high school teacher for almost 30 years, and I know how to spot a smother mother and a hover mother and a stalker mom a mile away. Mm. <laughs> I was not going to be that kind of parent. What I had not heard of, though, is a snowplow parent. And that's the mom who goes ahead of the children and smooths the way. And I was (laughs) like, oh, that's so mean. That's the problem preventing. And so, really, you know, uh, I had done, I ended up doing this um, study of Rebecca in Genesis 27. And I remember distinctly as I started reading uh, the story, I was like, oh, I'm so glad I'm nothing like her. She's so dysfunctional. Mm. The whole family <laughs> has so many problems, but especially Rebecca, my goodness. And, you know, God kept me there just stewing in that for about two months. And I realized, oh, girlfriend, she mm. and had so much in common. And I I actually have a monologue I do from her perspective starts out with the with the phrase I never meant to be a meddler. And mm. I think that's true for all of us. We don't wake up in the morning thinking I'm going to go stick my nose where it doesn't belong all day long. No, we wake <laughs> yeah. up thinking, I'm going to help the people I love and mm. you know quick shout out for anybody who's an enneagram 2 we are wired to do this. Mm. But what can end up happening is we fall into a savior syndrome. Where if we see a problem or a potential problem, we feel like the most loving thing to do is to swoop in and either solve it or prevent it. Hmm. And so what ends up happening is the people in our lives often don't experience the necessary natural consequences of their choices and for me even now it letting natural consequences happen feels like i'm causing them so like if people are feeling pain from a choice they've made and i don't go in and fix it i feel like i've caused the pain like i'm mm-hmm. still at that point of growing now i'm at the point now where i can process that pain <clears throat> and god is you know holding <clears throat> me back and what the most amazing thing is is as i stay out of it they end up learning to solve their own problems without <clears throat> me And then comes this horrifying realization, they don't need me. Don't need I knew you were going to oh say that because I may or may not have felt the same thing. What am I going to do now? I'm no longer necessary. And so for me, one of the hardest things in the world to do is to not do something. And, you know, I call it knotting because we don't even really have a word for for not stepping in, for not putting in my two cents, for not inserting myself in a situation where I don't belong. And yet notting is often the most helpful thing and the most loving thing i can do and i finally realized we actually do have a word for this it's called trusting it's called trusting god and trusting that he is god and i am not
0: i don't know i kind of like the word knotting i might just go around to say
3: it. <laughs> oh i use it all the time <laughs>
0: My uh, 20-year-old son just told me, you know, I said, hey, can I help you move? He said, no, mom, I, I think I got it covered. You know, I'm like,
3: what? he doesn't need me. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Same thing. How is this possible, Denise? <laughs> I don't understand.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for being with us today, both of you. We look forward to continuing the discussion next week as we learn how to love who we are and live our own life well. Well, we have so loved our time with you girls, and we
1: are so excited to to say that we are going to offer a copy of Exhale to our audience, to someone who wants to leave a comment, and we'll choose someone to receive. You can already see how much is just chock full in this book. We're just skimming the surface. Mm -hmm. You will be so impacted by reading Exhale. The raw truth is that pleasing man can prevent us from pleasing God. The radical grace is that as we lose who we are not, Christ is ready with an identity for us that covers our failings. And the real hope is that as we set healthy boundaries for our lives, God will strengthen us to choose wisely. You've been listening to the Black and White Podcast, where we filter life through the Bible and live life in the freedom of truth.